0: Welcome to the Gain, Grow, Retain podcast.
1: All right, well, we've got another episode of Gain, Grow, Retain, and today we've got Blake Bartlett, who is part of OpenView, and uh, Blake, why don't you uh, take away the floor for a minute and just tell us a little bit more about yourself and OpenView and what you guys are doing over there.
0: Yeah, Jeff, uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. So OpenView is a venture capital firm. We're based in Boston. We've been around since 2006. Uh, We manage uh, about a billion dollars, a billion and a half dollars of total capital. uh, And we invest exclusively in SaaS businesses. Uh, It's all we do. It's all we've ever done. Um, And then we're also pretty active about getting involved uh, from an operational support standpoint. So we're big on product-led growth, customer success, pricing and packaging, and a number of other things. So uh, excited to be chatting with you today.
1: Awesome. We always like to start these hopefully with a little bit of a fun question. So, uh, if you were to have a dream vacation, uh, where, where would that be right now? I think it's maybe particularly appropriate cause you know, we can't necessarily go on our travels, but, uh, what's, what's your dream vacation for this year during, uh, during the pandemic? Well, anything
0: during the pandemic, <laughs> I'm easy at this point. Uh, but my wife and I were actually just, uh, uh, reminiscing. So we just had our anniversary. Um, and last year for our anniversary was a bigger one. Uh, and we'd gone to, uh, to France. And we're just saying, how can we possibly please get us back to France to drink some wine and uh, just enjoy some time? So so one day soon, we'll get back on a plane and head that direction.
1: Yeah, I love it. My wife and I were supposed to go to Italy this year for our kind of big trip. And uh, unfortunately, we couldn't. And so then we were reminiscing. We got engaged out in uh, Napa, in wine country. And so we were also reminiscing about that, saying like, all right, when, when can we at least just travel cross country to go drink some wine somewhere and get some different atmosphere? Um, and, you know, clearly there's a lot more pressing things going on in the world for people to stay safe. And so hopefully we'll get to do that someday soon. But uh, I could feel your pain, so to speak. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, we were just chatting here for a few minutes, you know, beforehand. And obviously we've got a ton of customer success leaders listening to the podcast. It's kind of our core audience. And so um, I love how you described, you know, early as you're talking about OpenView, you know, you guys like to be in in, in operations. You like to get into different areas, uh, kind of board areas, so to speak. So um, how do you right now kind of envision, you kind of mentioned product-led growth as a big category for you. So how does customer success kind of fit into this product-led growth? Like how do you see those two things kind of becoming harmonious with one another?
0: Yeah, definitely. So I guess maybe to start on what is product-led growth and how do we think about it? So um, OpenView coined the term product-led growth back in 2016. um, And we've been big on it, both from an investment standpoint, you know, we're investors in companies like Datadog and Expensify and Calendly and and many others that have this product-led growth model, Um, but also very active from a thought leadership standpoint, certainly operationally working with our portfolio companies. So we're big on it. And we think of product-led growth as being a growth model or a go-to-market model that relies primarily on the product itself as the driver of customer acquisition, conversion, and expansion. So, you know, the customer journey today for enterprise software tends to start with self service. You know, the, how did your company adopt Slack or how did you adopt Slack? how did you adopt the Calendly or Trello or any of these solutions? Chances are it was on a self-service basis, not because of a cold call. And so if the customer journey has fundamentally shifted to where you're not starting with uh, sales conversations and a long sort of uh, journey through a funnel that might even involve customer success people or people who are going to be involved in the implementation and all that stuff. If now there are no humans involved, it's completely self-service and your users are out there on their own, how does that change the way that we build software products? How does that change the way that we build customer-facing organizations? Um, and I'd say the biggest thing that we see is that you do lead with self-service, And there still is a role for humans. You know, I always say that product-led growth is not anti-sales. It's not anti-success. It's just as needed, just as important as in traditional models. You just change the order of operations. So instead of leading with sales and leading with success, you lead with product. And then you support and you expand with sales and success. So there's a really nice uh, natural um, uh, joining there and dovetail. Uh, and I think that customer success has uh, been extremely important for for many years and has been growing its breadth and I think becomes only that much more important in a product led world uh, because the size of your customer base and the number of people that you touch and the surface area of your product grows and gets extremely large. And so um, you're now no longer dealing with a, a discrete, distinct set of customers, but instead a whole swath that's constantly growing of people that you need to make sure uh, are set up for success and then continue to be success from, or successful from a retention and an expansion standpoint over time.
1: Yeah. I love the distinction you made there too. Um, and I think I saw recently, it might've been a couple of slides that you had put on uh, LinkedIn maybe, but it was about Calendly and how this loop happens, right? And uh, why it starts to per- kind of per- precipitate on itself. Um, and I actually didn't even realize it, but I fell into that funnel where it's like, I actually got introduced to Calendly because I used it from somebody sending it to me first. And then I said, wait, what is this? And then I became a member, right? And so that's the that was just fascinating to see. I think you'd put that out on LinkedIn maybe recently, but um, it's that type of thing, which is really interesting because this kind of um, I think always tends to happen or you start to think about is like the B2C model of of products and how you kind of get into certain apps that you're using on your phone are becoming um, so self-service and so easy for you to set up that naturally you have to think that the B2B world is starting to catch up to that, those types of experiences and starting to design products and think about onboarding or think about the product differently um, in that case. And so that's, I tend to think about those too. Like I, we were just on a chat earlier with um, Jay, my business partner, and then Christy, who's a a woman that we have on our podcast regularly. And one of the things we talked about was how Apple just made it so seamless for all their products, right? You literally turn it on, I log into Apple ID, and then it syncs everything and it just seamlessly works. And I think that's really interesting. um, Kind of removing the friction is what comes to my mind as you start thinking about these product-led companies is that uh, they're really just trying to remove all the friction possible, getting that person onto the product in the first place.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And one thing that uh, using the Calendly example, so the way that most people discover Calendly is the same way. So you receive the, the link and you schedule a meeting with somebody and you say, Hey, that was pretty easy. That was a lot better than all of the back and forth emails that it typically takes. And you, you have that aha moment as a recipient and it causes you to want to sign up and then become a user yourself. And then when you become a user, you start sending a link to other people. And so the virality continues and it continues to compound uh, because this is a solution that really has value for virtually everybody under the sun. So, but if we, we talk about the the role of customer success, um, again, back to, so you discovered Calendly because you received the link, you signed up for it. There's probably other people on your team who have done the same thing. And so you could have a a situation, this is exactly how they see customer uh, acquisition and adoption happening, where you might have 10 people using Calendly uh, on a team, 20 people using Calendly on a team, and and they're all also paying customers too, but they all individually self-converted because they needed an additional premium feature or whatever it may be from Calendly. And so now if I'm Calendly, and if I'm a customer success manager, I look at it and say, okay, there are 20 paying seats in that account, and this is a large company, there could be a lot more. This seems like a really great opportunity for for me to call in and say, how can we better serve you? There's a bunch of integrations you're not using. Our Zoom integration is super powerful. Um, Have you used this? Have you used this other sort of team scheduling functionality that we have? Have you used it for interview panels? You start to, again, as a customer success person, you're not having a sales conversation convincing them to use the product because they're already using the product. It's more of how can I help you get more value out of the product? And then that's also a really natural um, opportunity to then have the contract conversation too. It's like, all right, you have 20 seats. There are a bunch of individual swipe credit cards. You probably want 40 seats. How about we also get you onto an invoice and onto a 12 month contract um, and, and better payment terms. Um, and so it's a natural opportunity, not just to sort of be helpful and help them expand their usage and, and find additional use cases, but also from your business standpoint to expand the contract to formalize the contract from that collection of users to an actual account.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, really kind of a fascinating point, right? Where it changes the dynamic of how customer success kind of thinks about these individual relationships uh, and really starts to think about, you know, how can we tie those to a business and then try and, and, you know, again, get value for not only the business, but the individuals. Um, The the other point that that is interesting, and I'm curious how this starts to happen over time because you mentioned, right? Calendly is one example, but essentially um, I would imagine in a lot of product-led growth companies, Uh, the products can be used in so many various ways or so many different industries that uh, kind of segmentation on the back end or internally at the business segmentation becomes important because uh, you want to start to identify kind of key use cases or uh, like other other examples that you can apply. And I think that just probably precipitates a little bit more in those types of scenarios because it probably is the breadth of people that are using the products. So segmentation becomes a big part for customer success to go drive some of those discussions and those questions that you were just mentioning.
0: Exactly. Yeah, because I think that the other there's another sort of uh, misconception or sort of a common trap that people could fall into with product led growth or with journeys that start as self service, which is, you know, say you want to get a really big logo like Walmart or Amazon, and you get one user to sign up and maybe it's let's talk about Amazon, you get a salesperson in Seattle to sign up for it. And then you get somebody in their Boston office who's a recruiter to sign up for it. And you're like, great, now we, have, we doubled our seat count. Like this thing must be ready for an enterprise deal, right? Let me cold call that sales rep and see if they're, if they're gonna introduce me to their boss. And, and it doesn't work that way, right? The sales rep has no, no idea that the person in the other office who's a recruiter is using the product. Um, they just got it because they thought it was going to be helpful. They're like, look, I, I don't have time for this. And so you need to be cautious about how quickly and how eagerly are you calling in and trying to activate this self-service demand and make sure that there actually is critical mass of demand um, and that there is consistency, right? If you have 10 sales reps in the same office who are all sitting right next to each other getting a value out of it, that's, that's momentum, right? If you have one and then you have somebody that's completely disconnected, that's not momentum. Uh, those are just two data points.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it. Um, I, I like the way you talked about this a little bit earlier too, where you start thinking about the um, the experience from kind of that initial point that you even just sign up, right? Like it's just, uh, everything has to be kind of so tightly wound either into the product or there's some sort of um, flow that's happening that's really guiding you that um, becomes less human led, which is a lot, tends to happen in a lot of B2B SaaS, especially enterprise organizations now. And I think that's been really interesting um, for us over the last three years is that people still tended to think in kind of human terms, right? Like, Hey, I need to, like, we need to have this meeting and in, in kind of alignment point. We need to have X, Y, and Z set up. Um, and so what we've tried to continue to get our thinking to be is, you know, what's the what is the easiest or best way to remove that friction? And then is it right now, maybe a person or a human that's doing that? And then is that eventually something that we could get into the product or get into a Pendo flow or something, you know, some sort of tool walk me that sits on top of, of the product. But um, I think there's kind of maybe a gradual scale that you have to start thinking about too, with some of these enterprise SaaS companies that have been traditionally operating in a way that was very human led. Uh, because I think even they're going to have to go through a little bit of a change where they're starting to think about uh, how to onboard, you know, their product a little bit faster, get, get to, t- to moments of value, because the market is just going to precipitate that given where we're going and how quickly software is being uh, built.
0: Yeah, I I definitely agree with that. And um, I would say for, this is a common question I get a lot of times, which is, okay, our company was started 10 years ago or something like that. We are not product-led and self-serve today, but we want to become that, or we want to add that motion. Where do I begin? How do I do it? And I think um, sometimes there can be this perception that, okay, we'll just make it an initiative for this quarter. And, you know, three months later, we'll just be the next Slack, right? Um, <laughs> it's a little harder than that, uh, as you would expect. Yeah. Um, and so w- where do you begin? Um, and, and I think trying to do it all in one fell swoop of you had a non-self service product, and then all of a sudden you're going to do some work and flip a switch and then it'll be the next Slack or it'll be like perfect. It's just not the case. Um, because again, if you've had this human led process and it's been that way for years, you, you aren't even aware of all of the things that, you know, your team is doing in order to help the customer journey advance. You aren't even aware of all the things that people are doing in the backgrounds behind the scenes, um, you know, the knobs and dials that they're tweaking in order to make the product work right, um, because it wasn't made to be end user facing self-service. It was meant to be sort of um, controlled by an account manager, or by a success manager, who's going to make sure that it's working the right way. And so what could be a, a first step? Anything that that customer success person or that account manager, or that technical account manager, or that implement, implementation specialist, whoever it is, anything that they would normally be needing to do in the configuration panel, in the admin panel, um, the knobs, the dials, the things that they're tweaking. Some companies, you can't even create an account on an automated basis. Somebody has to go into the back end and create the account before there's something to even log into. Um, you know, if, if you can't do a self-service payment with a credit card, if the only option is to have a contract, that then has an invoice, that then has to receive a check or an ACH payment, um, you know, these are things that you can start with, right? Productize and automate the backend, uh, remove the humans like little by little to where your, your business and your product, even if you remain sales-led, even if you don't become the next Slack with this viral loop or something like that, your business is still better because there's less human effort and there's less things that uh, and, and less cost, quite frankly, and you're able to move quicker. And so start on the back end. Um, automate, productize human effort and knobs and dials that people are normally um, sort of configuring themselves and turn that into automation. And then you can start to bring more of that to the fore and more of that to the customer facing um, side once you fix the plumbing in the back end.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's such a good point. And, um, and something too, which has been interesting is we, you know, probably is something that we should already inherently know, but uh, we've gone into some industries where um, it's actually Sometimes worked against that mindset. Sometimes, and so like one was oil and gas, Um, and it was mainly because of the end user and what their experience was generally like. And so it actually took more education to help them get, you know, uh, sign up for a credit card, understanding that they could go do these things. So it's actually really interesting uh, as well. I think that there's uh, there's always this end user component when you're thinking about those experiences, right? Like it can't just sometimes if the product is is broad enough um, and can be general, right? There's there's things that can happen, but sometimes if you're in a niche industry, I found it's really interesting that um, you really have to think about it from the end users perspective of what are they used to, what are some of their processes today uh, and what are they going to be comfortable with? And I think that goes back to your point, like what are the gradual steps that you're going to take to introduce this to them on the front end? Because um, sometimes if you do it in one fell swoop too, like all of a sudden you've confused your end users and uh, you know, now they, they have something new that they have to do when they're trying to get their job done. And now it's kind of disrupting what they're, you know, you're kind of creating an unhappy experience. So uh, that's another Oil and gas is an interesting one. I think that's a little one off, but there's uh, probably some other industries think about that too, where the end user experience um, and understanding how they use the software and the tool and how they've done that previously is a huge of importance as you're thinking about that. Yeah,
0: I think one thing that comes through in your description there is uh, thinking about things from a first principles standpoint versus going in with, uh, you know, existing assumptions as to what will and won't work in a particular industry, because obviously technology is moving so quickly, things are changing so quickly. And so, you know, if I'm, if I'm in that, that position that you just described with an oil and gas company, um, if I'm building software for the oil and gas industry, I could go in with a pre-existing assumption, which is this is a traditional industry. They will never self-service a product. So therefore, I will not even try to build one. And so you're going in and you're almost already boxing yourself into a corner because you have a pre-existing assumption as opposed to this is an industry. (laughs) There are people who work in this industry. They have devices, they have problems, they have needs. There are jobs to be done. What are those things? How could we solve those problems? You know, a much more blank canvas, um, much more sort of first principles approach to the problem solving. And I think what that unlocks, um, and, and this is something that I've certainly been impressed with is seeing the way in which no, a number of product-led growth businesses have been able to go after traditional industries um, that you would normally think are not addressable. So there's a company called out of San Diego called Rakin um, that goes to construction workers on the job site, not to the GC, not to the, you know, the foreman who's managing technology or the, the, uh, the executive who's managing technology for the entire company, but the person who's actually on the job site. Uh, and they distribute a mobile app that's free to start to solve a very specific problem that happens on the job site, which is the daily report at the end of the day. What, what happened today? What problems did we have? It's like a daily stand up for contractors. Um, and they solve that very specific problem. They didn't try to build a PLG version of Procore right out of the gates. They said, no, yeah. we're solving an end user problem. And we're going to do that in its, in its own appropriate way. Uh, there's another company out of L.A. called Upkeep. Uh, which is um, in the maintenance management space and the facilities management space. Uh, Again, another very traditional industry, which you could have said, these will be laggards to adopt technology. We can't have whiz bang consumer grade stuff because they will never uh, buy it. We have to build something that's businessy and something that uh, feels substantial. Um, But that's not actually the case. Technicians and facilities managers and people like that, they have a smartphone in their pocket They hate all of the friction of running back to the, to the desktop station to use, you know, CMMS software that's like two decades old just to close out a simple work order. Um, So think about it from their perspective and build a free product available on the mobile app store that's specifically around work order management um, that puts yourself from a true customer empathy standpoint, puts yourself in those end user shoes and solve their pain as opposed to having, again, this like preexisting notion of like, what is maintenance management software need to be because of what was it three decades ago when the industry started.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I love, love those examples. And, um, I love the idea too, of, like, like you mentioned earlier of almost deconstructing some of these other solutions that already exist in the market and thinking, you know, obviously I feel like that's really big when you start looking at things that came out of Craigslist or things that came out of uh, other solutions that have been around for a long time, you can kind of deconstruct and kind of pull it out. Uh, so I think about that example, uh, like you were just talking about, um, at, we were talking a little bit earlier too, like when you start looking at product led businesses, you know, again, kind of coming from the, the enterprise SaaS or we'll say kind of human led SaaS. um, traditionally, you know, you've got kind of your net net revenue retention becomes a, mostly a key metric that we're looking at on a regular basis. We're trying to find some leading indicators there. Um, a lot of times we're trying to build health scores, maybe that encompass, uh, you know, sentiment from the customer sentiment from our side product data. And so I'm curious, how does that kind of adapt or change as you're looking at some of the product led uh, companies that you're working with? You know, how is it generally the same? Or are you finding a couple of different points that you're kind of involving in that customer journey that, you know, uh, maybe are a little bit more automated and fit kind of in that um, kind of, uh, fit into the, the metrics that we're trying to get ahead of for, you know, some of our uh, lagging indicators.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that, um, the, another big shift that happens in product like growth, again, I talked about it as being about the end user. You're shifting your mindset from the executive or the champion who represents an account. Um, so you kind of have one person that you're, you're looking to, uh, to serve or at least one primary person. And now it shifts it towards the end user where you have, I give that Calendly example, you have more like a collection of end users who are all sort of operating independently rather than a single champion who represents the account. And so having this mindset shift um, is important because it will, as you mentioned, change what you measure and change what you think as being the barometer for, for how are we doing and, and what's our customer health uh, sort of uh, right now. So for example, again, back to the world in which it's an account that you have and you have a single champion, really what you care about is what is that champion's level of satisfaction? Um, are they engaged with me? Are they still working there? Or did the champion leave? Because God forbid, that's the worst thing that could possibly happen in the old world, right? Um, yeah. And so it's all about the champion. Are they happy? Are they telling me the right things? Um, how are they, you know, uh, processing things with me on the QBRs? And does it seem like they're going to sign the, uh, the renewal and possibly even upgrade? And you're kind of single threading through that, that mindset. But and again, in this world where you have 20 calendar users who may or may not be aware of one another, like who's the champion? There isn't a champion yet. Uh, eventually you'll create, you know, again, if you get enterprise wide adoption, which Calendly has many of those Slack, Zillow, many others. So they have a champion now, but it, you didn't get there by targeting the champion out of the gates. You got there by targeting the individual end users. And so you're going to think more about what are the product analytics? What are the engagement metrics? What are the, what's, even if it is NPS, what's the NPS at the user level um, rather than at the account level? And how can I look at these individual actions, um, you know, and, and sort of, did a, a combined view of the individual actions of users, as opposed to, you know, taking the uh, champion's perspective as gospel.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Like you said too, like you're, you know, you're kind of, uh, as you're thinking about piecing that account together right across the 20 users or what you're thinking about, uh, it becomes really important for that customer success manager to try and identify who could be uh, probably not only one champion, but who are probably several champions because uh, back to your example, right? I would imagine in some of these organizations that we're working with, it starts to be that it's probably a lot more cross departmental use. You've probably got somebody in sales, somebody in HR, somebody in marketing who are using these things. And so now it can't just be that, Hey, we've got one champion because that person might only live in the sales organization. And I, you've kind of neglected the other two. And so, Uh, it probably becomes a lot more just about uh, kind of relationship mapping and understanding the organization a little bit deeply to say, Hey, if we are going to go after this enterprise type action, uh, we need to make sure we've kind of got the right contacts mapped in the right areas and understand uh, ultimately like, you know, where's this invoice going to go? Like who's actually, whose budget it's going to come from, how they're going to anticipate this on their end. Like it probably introduces slightly different questions that we're asking ourselves today, because back to your point, right? Generally today, we're, we already know we're already in one business unit for the most part. And we're generally going to cross sell or upsell into another business unit where we kind of know that path. Um, and this is, this becomes a little unclear or hazy until it starts to kind of relationship map out.
0: Exactly. And I think that's, that's a perfect opportunity for customer success managers. And I do think that this is the evolving role of customer success, because if, if you're back to that collection of 20 individual users, um, it becomes the CSM's job. It becomes the, the software company's job to say, OK, what are the, how can I piece together value, business value from these 20 people who are using Calendly so that I can make the 20 people 50 people or 100 people? Because I know to get from here to there, it is going to require an executive conversation. But the good news is people are using the product. I don't have to convince them of the value. I don't have to convince them to use it in the first place. I just have to convince them of the ROI. I have to convince them that they should allocate more budget um, to this and that they should expand. And so now you start to say, okay, um, again, we'll keep talking about Calendly because that's the example you've been using. So say it's a sales team that's using Calendly. Um, if you just straight out of the gates, call call a VP of sales and say, do you want to buy a scheduling link? You're going to get hung up on because it doesn't sound important. But if you look at the behavior of all the individuals and you say, okay, you know, it looks like they've been able to increase their meetings scheduled um, and like how busy their calendar is by 25%. And we've been able to see sort of a reduction of email volume just for basic annoying scheduling stuff by X percent. So if there are 20 users and we're seeing this number of increase in meetings, um, you know, how can we turn that into a business case? So that we can take that to the sales manager. We can take that to the director of sales. We can take that to the VP of sales. Um, and so you've been able to, in some ways, look at the product analytics and look at the engagement and look at the results um, that are coming from the individual end users. Um, but you're also, you know, you're piecing it together with some judgment um, and then making an argument um, to So you're still bringing in some of those traditional skill sets uh, as well. And, and that's the really great sort of self-service plus human effort, um, you know, marriage that I think uh, we're seeing increasingly happen.
1: Yeah, and probably the carrot on that stick, right? The carrot right at the end of there too is probably understanding what integrations they're currently using. So are you do you use Zoom? Like we can kind of understand their tech stack a little bit based on the integrations that they're using and then also kind of piece that into the fold as well, right? Like ultimately over time, uh, we're talking about a sales team. Hey, how does that data get back tracked back into Salesforce or back into our CRM engine? Um, and here's the best, here, you know, here's use cases that we've seen across our other clients, right? That's that's how you can kind of get to that extra point of value where you can actually be delivering them content from your other customers who have been successful, maybe with their same tech stack or, or you know, how those things start falling together um, and how that kind of comes into the fold. So I love that example too of just, again, using the integrations to your advantage as well as the product analytics to help tell the story. Um, and then, Again, over time, you're going to have so many of those stories internally that you can kind of rely upon to drive value in those situations uh, back into that customer.
0: Yeah, exactly. And by having some of those conversations, you can also identify if there are misconceptions that you can clear up. You know, for example, back to to Calendly, you know, if if you sort of reach out and say, hey, so how about uh, how about we get the wholesales team using this thing? And say you get a response back, which is, well, actually, we wouldn't be able to do that because we'd be looking for a solution that can embed into the website. So you can do self-service demo booking. Um, So we're not ready for Calumni. And then you would immediately respond back and be like, no, we have that functionality. (laughs) Here's the documentation for our open API. uh, And here are two customer examples of people who do that, right? So you can also identify and understand, like if you just leave self-service to its own devices, they will probably eventually get there. Um, but they, it's not going to be a top priority. And so they might eventually get there two years later. Um, and if you could sort of come in and act as a catalyst and help, and maybe they get there in six months, as opposed to two years, it's better for them because uh, they're getting more value out of it. And it's better for you um, because you got there faster.
1: Yeah. Yeah, man, that's a good example. Uh, well, we've, we've talked, you know, a lot about customer success and a uh, slightly different angle, just because I know you you've taken um, again, I think, I don't know if I mentioned this when we first started recording or not, but uh, I just have seen your LinkedIn content, a lot of the videos you put out. Um, I think, you know, the production quality is amazing, but more so just the content, right? Like it's all focused. And I think what I'm deriving from it is you're just trying to put value back into the larger community at large, right? Explaining what product like growth is, being the thought leader, um, talking a lot about, you know, how these companies are getting to a point where they're going to go public or uh, their next funding round, what their numbers look like. And so I'm just curious from your standpoint, uh, like was, when did that become a big focus for you or for OpenView? Uh, I think we've been Uh, maybe pleasantly surprised on our end, right? Like we probably last year, if you were talking to me, uh, I didn't have a LinkedIn following. I didn't really have this community. So I was probably, uh, you know, just connecting with friends uh, and, and other people and noticing that Uh, I wasn't getting, you know, that much value out of LinkedIn. Fast forward a year, I've been helping to produce content and put it out on LinkedIn and then vice versa. I've just consumed so much more. I've been a little bit more open maybe to seeing other people. And it's been huge. It just, you learn different things. You see different people in different industries, but you get to have conversations like this. So uh, I'm curious, you know, what was that moment for you or how did you guys decide that this was going to be a focal point, um, you know, in part of your business? And, And then after that, we might get to like some of the effects that you've seen down the line.
0: Yeah, so I think uh, two things come to mind there. One is, um, even goes back to why did we feel the need to coin another three-letter or three-word uh, acronym <laughs> um, in the SaaS world? There's no shortage of those. Um, but I think, honestly, what we saw was uh, was certainly the the continued success of companies with this model. Um, you know, so for, for uh, in our portfolio, Datadog and the Expensify and others. Uh, and then also how outside of our portfolio, companies like Slack and Zoom and uh, Atlassian were, were really these are the best companies. These are the companies that have the best performance. As soon as they file for that S1, you see their performance. You're like, yep, um, both on the top line as well as on the capital efficiency uh, bottom line as well. Um, and so it, it caused us to look at it and say, all right, well, what's different about these companies? Um, and we realized that, that it was this self-service model that was this bottoms up motion. Um, but when you look for best practices around that, at least especially four years ago, um, there was, you know, people would just refer to casually the bottom up sort of model, or they would uh, mistakenly say that's the freemium model of Slack. They're successful because they have that freemium model. And that's a pricing strategy. It's not, you know, the thing that singularly explains the success of Slack. Um, And there was just no community around these, uh, this motion, there was no sort of way to double click in and get the best practices. And so we put product led growth out there, um, one, to have sort of a unifying term, uh, and then to increasingly sort of have a term that turns into a community and a movement, but then also has that from us and from others, the ability to double click into it. So you see the best practices versus just seeing a single tweet that, you know, talks about bottom up or something like that. So that was the starting point. You know, here we are four years later, I think that continues. And so some of my efforts on LinkedIn and our podcast and everything we do is just wanting to continue to build that double click functionality into product led growth to understand how do I do it and how do I do it well? Um, so that's one. And, and I think the other thing, uh, which is newer for me um, in the last you know, year or so, which led to me um, doing a lot more stuff on LinkedIn, was, was realizing that there still is a misconception as well that this is a, an isolated example, um, that product like growth is an isolated thing that only works in certain companies. There's kind of this dismissal, which is like, yeah, that works if you're Slack. Yeah, that works if you're Zoom, but we're not that. We serve oil and gas, so it doesn't apply to us. Um, and, I, and I increasingly saw these examples, like the companies that I mentioned earlier, and saw that it really isn't this magical, mysterious thing. It's just flipping how, who you're building for. It's building for the end user instead of the executive. It's starting with self-serve instead of with sales. And this can apply to literally every enterprise software category under the sun. And so then the goal became, how can we make the world realize that this isn't just Slack, Zoom, and Calendly, but this is applicable everywhere. And, and so the idea initially was, um, you know, can I do something called This Week in PLG, where I show all of the examples of product-led growth um, that came out of the news last week and point to the fact that, hey, you know, you know and love New Relic, you know, and love Datadog, you know, and love Trello. Did you know that these are all also product-led growth businesses? And here's how they're sort of stitching together best practices. Um, and so that, that has then developed from a sort of this week in PLG, like news digest into a daily show, which is called the PLG one, two, three, where we do one story a day and unpack exactly that and just show people that product-led growth is everywhere. It applies to all industries. There are lots of ways to sort of embrace it. Um, and, and you're seeing it pop up everywhere. So that's really the intent um, and, uh, and and have been getting great response out of it and, and people have been loving it. And it seems to be filling that exact goal, which is helping people see uh, that this isn't isolated just a couple of uh, hot companies in, in SF, but instead that uh, it really touches everything in software.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that to me, the big thing that has stood out, at least for us as we've developed our kind of a gain, grow, retain community, and we've started to put you know, thought leadership content out there about customer success was, you know. For us, it was the conversations that it opened and the people and the engagement that you get and the fact that, you know, you kind of think sometimes that they're, hey, there's probably already content out there. There's probably already, there's enough content in the world, right? And then you start, as you start doing your digging, as you start looking, it's like, hey, there really isn't that much great content or I think I have a different angle. And again, you've got so many different avenues to open up that channel now, uh, put out content that, you know, hopefully resonates with people and you start to kind of go from there. I think there was a big, what I've seen maybe on LinkedIn, right? The stat that you've read for years is that 3% of LinkedIn users actually post. Um, and so then, you know, if you start thinking in that mindset, it's like, well, you know, what, what am I scared of? If I'm you know, thinking about content or thought leadership or things that I can put out there. And mainly it comes down to the fact that you're afraid to kind of put your opinion out and get responses back and hear, you know, feedback from people. Once you kind of get over that, I feel like it becomes kind of a snowball effect where you start realizing that the more content you put out, the more conversations it's going to open, the more networking opportunities. And so it's, it's really beneficial for you as an individual. And then your brand, just by association, whoever you work for at that time, the the things that you're talking about, hopefully by, you know by being aligned with you kind of get some, some goodwill out of that as well. And so down the line, it's almost like winning on brand because you're, you're kind of developing all these experiences that people are touching and feeling and going through and, and interacting with you. And then they're, you know, they can apply those um, somewhere down the line. So I think we, we've found almost very similar things to to what you mentioned as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I would say one on your point of being a little bit hesitant to put your perspective out there because how's it going to be received? Um, I would say one thing that I was certainly sensitive to at the beginning was um, th- there are no singular points. Everything is caveated. And I felt like if I was putting a singular point out there that wasn't sort of, I understand that you could see it this way. I understand you could see it that way. And there's an argument for this and that and the other. Like I felt like the the need to make sure that people knew that You know, I didn't have a singular sort of myopic point of view, but that I appreciated the pantheon of perspectives that you could have here. Um, That tends not to do very well on LinkedIn or on social media in general, like highly caveated and nuanced uh, perspectives. And so, you know, on on social media kind of coming out with that strong perspective, um, you know, I even kind of jokingly just say, hey, this is a hot take uh, because like I'm not trying to be nuanced. I'm trying to sort of put out something that I'm observing. And then the nuance comes through comments right? Somebody says, yeah, that's true, but I'm worried about this. Um, and then you can kind of layer in your perspective. Yeah, it's a good point. I see these data points and stuff. And so it turns it into a more conversational channel, um, which, you know, creates much more real connections with the people that, uh, that are following you or that you're engaging with. Um, and then it also happens to, you know, feed the LinkedIn algorithm or whatever social media algorithm. So it also, you know, drives some uh, potential for virality on that particular post too.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Well, Blake, um, I know we've, we've uh, taken up a bunch of time and so I appreciate it. I think, you know, there's kind of two things that I think are really actionable for people to think about. And it goes back to a couple of points you mentioned earlier, just around the fact of you can't kind of go, you know, if you are, I would say generally the people listening to this podcast are probably going to be in your typical enterprise SaaS businesses that have been uh, not necessarily, I would consider in product-led growth. And so I think you can't get there overnight and so the things that you mentioned earlier uh, kind of thinking about what are the what are the things behind the scenes that we can start to automate uh, we can start to really get behind put some systems and put some movement in um really started to resonate with me is like a, an action that people can start to look at so how can you kind of map those things um, look at them start to document what's happening internally that we need to do in order for the customer to get this product or this experience to happen um, and then starting to almost like document those on a regular basis with your starting with your executive team your product team going around and thinking okay are these challenges that we can solve like when does this really fit into our strategy as we go forward uh, but at least acknowledging those first seems like a really tangible next step for for folks to uh, focus on so uh, i appreciate this has been fun blake if people want to find you and your content and other things what's what's the best place to uh, to find you
0: well, as you pointed to LinkedIn's a great place. So uh, yeah, add me on LinkedIn. I'll happily accept uh, anyone or follow me. And um, you can also go to Openview's blog and you'll see a bunch of product like growth content. You'll see uh, links to our podcasts, which come out bi-weekly uh, and are mostly about product like growth as well.
1: Awesome. Well, hope uh, I hope you and your wife get to go to France and uh, enjoy some of that wine. And until then, uh, hopefully we'll get another chance to talk soon. Yeah, someday. We're well, looking forward to it. Thanks so much, Jeff.